0: Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Good morning, everyone. This is our first brand new episode in 2020, so Happy New Year from What Christians Should Know. For those who are joining us for the first time, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast player. For those who have been with us, I'd like to welcome everyone back and thank you for joining us once again at the start of a fresh new year. My prayer is that God will bless you in your Bible study in 2020 and that He will grace us as we proceed in our verse-by-verse exposition of the Book of Romans together. We spent 30 episodes last year moving through all of Romans chapter 1. Today, although we will eventually end up with an exposition of Romans chapter 2 verse 1, we will generally take a big picture look at the second chapter in the epistle to the Romans. We will also compare it with the general themes discussed in the first chapter. So the full text of Romans 2 1 says, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Paul begins this new chapter with the word therefore. So what is that word therefore? What does it mean? It means that what Paul is about to say is connected to what he has already said. So what did Paul already say? Well, the therefore of Romans 2:1 connects us back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 19 and the apostle's subsequent argument. There, Paul talks about unbelief and its consequences after introducing us to the gospel. Since the gospel is a major theme in the book of Romans overall, let us now review it before moving forward. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, and the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The gospel is in fact the best news anyone has ever heard. Even more, this news is relevant to all people without distinction. The gospel is an announcement of what God has accomplished for man through Christ because man is incapable of saving himself. The gospel is of first importance because outside of Christ, no man will be saved. No man will be saved because only Jesus endured the full wrath of God as a substitute for our sins. Hence, only those who trust in who Christ is and what he has accomplished may be justly pardoned. The Gospel is good news because it is a free offer of sovereign grace to undeserving sinners. This compels all men to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a quick synopsis of the Gospel, and the good news is really, really good because there is really, really bad news. And what's the bad news? That all human beings are guilty, have fallen short of the glory of God, and have earned the just condemnation of the Lord. The bad news, as Romans 1.18-19 tells us, is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against "...all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them." What the Apostle subsequently does in the rest of Romans chapter 1 is expound upon how the wrath of God is revealed against Gentiles, those who do not have the law but to whom God made himself evident through creation. Accordingly, the latter half of Romans 1 shows us the terrible condition of depravity that man is in. It also explains to us why men behave badly and why the world is broken. That is to say, men who are given over to a reprobate mind and who commit abominable deeds are living proof that the wrath of God is revealed against all sin. Romans 1 ends by describing to us what a totally depraved sinner looks like. They are, for example, filled with all unrighteousness, wicked, greedy, evil, murderous, contentious, arrogant, boastful, unloving, unmerciful, and are an inventor of evil. Worst of all, they also give hearty approval to other sinners who do the same as them. Now let us consider the transition from Romans chapter 1 to chapter 2. You could have been a quote-unquote very religious Jew in Paul's day, read Romans 1, and then said to yourself, boy, I'm glad I'm not one of those people. I'm glad I'm not a murderous inventor of evil. Or you could have feigned some honesty and said, gosh, I'm no saint, but I'm certainly not as bad as one of them, like one of those barbaric and sinful Gentiles. What Paul now does in Romans 2 is demonstrate divine judgment away from the Gentile and toward the Jew in order to tell the latter that they stand in the exact same perilous position as the Gentile, guilty before a holy, just, and impartial God. Subsequently, at the end of chapter 2, it is evident that the Gentile and Jew are both condemned and are thus equally in desperate need of the gospel. How is the wrath of God revealed against Gentiles without the law? Romans 1, 20-32 tells. How is the wrath of God revealed against the Jew with the law? Romans 2, 1-29 tells us. In the known world back then, you were only either a Gentile or a Jew. So Romans 2 points us toward the universal necessity of Jesus Christ. And just to be clear, when I say law, what do I mean? I'm talking about the Mosaic law, as in all the thou shouts and thou shalt nots of the Old Testament. The law was not revealed to Gentile nations like Greece and Rome. The law was only revealed to the Jews who were bound by covenant to obey the law. Now before we proceed and begin an exposition of chapter 2 verse 1, let us take a big picture view of the chapter in front of us. Essentially, Paul begins by making an accusation based on God's perfect scales of justice and then qualifies that judgment in three ways. First, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, Paul sets forth the principles that govern God's judgment. God judges according to the truth and according to what a person does, not who they are. This text is biting because Paul writes that contrary to popular belief, God will not treat the sins of the Jews in a special way. This is because God is impartial. God's justice is perfect and therefore cannot and is not partial. This means the Jew is not safe just because he is a Jew. Second, in verses 12-16, to Paul explains that God will judge based on the light a person has. Therefore, if someone has a greater revelation from God, this means they have a greater responsibility, not a lesser one. Merely having the law does not make a person safe. It, in fact, makes them more accountable. Third, in verses 17 through 24, the apostle explains that the Jew was guilty because they are in fact condemned by the law. They may have regarded having God's law as an asset when in reality, because there was a gap between profession and practice, the law condemned them. Finally, and fourth, in verses 25 to 29, the apostle explains that the Jew cannot have faith in circumcision. Why? Because external circumcision was no guarantee of God's favor. Because external circumcision is of no value without an internal circumcision of heart. Bible scholars use the word covenantal nominism to describe the Jewish idea that everyone who belongs to the biological nation of Israel is saved. Paul debunks this idea in chapter 2 in that salvation is a personal issue between one man and God. Thus, in order to appreciate the force of the apostles' words in verses 25-29, it should be remembered that the principal ground on which the Jews expected acceptance with God was group salvation based on the covenant with Abraham. The ancient Jews, therefore, rejected the gospel on two grounds. Number one, they thought they did not need salvation. And number two, that the gospel made it possible for the Gentile to be saved, which they hated. All of this helps us to understand why Paul tells his fellow Jews that they cannot have faith in the circumcision. Overall, what we see in Romans 2 is the brilliance of the Apostle Paul under the power of the Holy Spirit to shine ever more brightly. That is, Paul anticipates the arguments a self-righteous Jew would make to erect barriers against the Gospel. So what the Apostle does is break the wall stones into pieces before any obstacle can be constructed. A Jew, or any self righteous religious person for that matter, they could finish Romans 1 but misunderstand it. They could say, None of that wrath of God business applies to me because I'm special. Paul thus says in verses 1 to 11 that God does not have favorites because there is no partiality with God. He judges according to divine truth, and divine truth does not take sides. You are therefore likewise guilty a Jew could possibly say but we have the law but Paul preemptively says yes you have the law but do you live it it's not the hearers or the havers of the law who are justified but the doers of the law and you have failed miserably to practice what you preach you are therefore likewise guilty a Jew could possibly say but we have the circumcision we have Abraham as our father and base our faith with God based upon a divine promise We as a people have the security blanket of the Abrahamic covenant. Paul says in verses 25 to 29 that a real Jew is not one who has their foreskin removed by another person. A real Jew is an individual whose heart is circumcised by God to live the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Paul therefore implies that you are therefore likewise guilty. What the Apostle will subsequently do in Romans chapter 3 is therefore come to the universal conclusion that everyone is guilty and thus everyone needs Jesus. Now the way Paul presents his argument here warrants discussion. Of course, these are not the Apostle's own words, but the words breathed out by God himself. What I'm getting at is, Cognizant of divine inspiration, why does the apostle present the facts this way in Romans 2? Why does he seemingly dismantle the arguments a Jew could make before they actually make an argument? And I think the simple answer is that the apostle was a Jew and at one point in his life was a hyper-religious Pharisee. Paul thus had a very well-informed understanding of the Jewish worldview. It is therefore reasonable to conclude that he could intelligently anticipate the Jewish objections to the gospel. As a man who was commanded to preach the gospel, it was therefore fitting for him to persuasively address his audience. I think the other reason the apostle argues this way is that he is in the middle of dealing with the sin problem. He is, in essence, continuing his train of thought from the prior chapter and explaining to us what sin looks like and what it does to man's thinking. Sin makes a man's mind depraved and it blinds him to how perilous his predicament really is. Sin hates to admit that I am at fault and will always make excuses for corrupt behavior, even under the guise of religion. Sin delights in the lie that I am okay and will therefore in desperation hold on to arguments like, I am a Jew, I have the law, I am circumcised, therefore I am right with God. Sin will hold on to feeble inadequacies like these in order to feel satisfied in the self and not have to deal with the real God. Yes, the Jew of chapter 2 may not be committing the grosser vices of the Gentile in chapter 1, but they are committing the less obvious, more subtle vices that places them in an equally dangerous predicament. In fact, the person Paul begins addressing in chapter 2 verse 1 may outwardly look to be the most religious. They may outwardly play the part very well and be very, very moral. They may seem to be saying all the right things and doing all the right things, and that's the problem. That's the problem because the outwardly moral person who is self-satisfied is typically harder to reach with the gospel because they are self-contented. Compare this with the person who is obviously evil. They cannot conceal their transgressions and know their standing with the Lord is not right. The moral person may actually believe in their heart that without Christ, they are acceptable in the eyes of God. Nothing could be farther from the truth. This, I think, is why the Apostle anticipates the objections sin will raise and destroys them with the Lord's unshakable truth. But let's take it one step further into a modern application. In the same way Paul rebukes a Jew for passing judgment on a Gentile, I also think it would be a mistake for a Christian in the 21st century to read Romans 1-2 to and then say, look at all those Gentile pagans. Look at all those self-righteous Jews. They're so fallen. I'm glad I am not like that because I know better or I act better. Thinking something like that would be a huge mistake and would be missing the Apostle's point. Thinking something like that would mean you are in the same predicament as the accused person of Romans 2. You see, it is very possible to misread the first two chapters of this epistle and to arrive at the misunderstanding that there are good guys and bad guys. What Paul is not saying is that there are good guys. There are no people who have gotten it right and who are righteous by themselves. That means no one can say amen to all the just condemnation of all those despicable sinners and therein think that they are okay by comparison. There are no good guys because we are all bad guys. See Psalm 58.3, Isaiah 64.6, Jeremiah 79, Romans 3.10-11, and 1 Corinthians 2.14. We are all bad guys and that includes me and it includes you because we are all guilty of doing the very same things described in Romans chapters 1 and 2. Our guilt may emanate from gross, overt vices, or it may emanate from discreet, subtle vices that no one else can see on the outside. Paul says you are just as guilty of doing the very same things. That applies as much to a self-righteous 1st century Jew as it does to a self-righteous 21st century Christian. This is why the gospel is of first importance, because imperfect partial people can imperfectly judge one another all day long. But in that scenario, there is no forgiveness, no salvation, and no hope. But when a man comes before Christ with a repentant heart and admits his guilt before God based on his perfect and impartial scales, What that man will find is a gracious judge who is ready to pardon anyone who confesses their sins, repents, and believes. God is faithful and true to redeem that sinner who is now justified. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, not people who are satisfied with themselves. Now that we have a big picture of where we've been and where we are, let us now finally dive into our focus today, Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Again, that text says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. As we have already discussed, the first word of this verse, therefore, This word, in general, connects to what the Apostle already said in chapter 1, verses 18-32. to More specifically, therefore relates to the announcement of God's wrath in light of the reality of the knowledge of God. That is, because God's wrath is revealed against all people, and because all people have been given a knowledge of God, the person who judges is therefore without excuse. People judge because they possess a God-given sense of right and wrong, proving that right and wrong actually mean something. And if right and wrong actually mean something, when God passes judgment, it is based on more than something. It is based on the ultimate scales of right and wrong. The text says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. You is singular in the original Greek, so who is you referring to? Who is Paul specifically addressing? It's important not to miss that all throughout verses 1-5, to Paul repeatedly uses you in the singular in contrast to them and they at the end of chapter 1. He therefore changes to whom he is speaking. Now it's no surprise I have already given away my thoughts on who you is you is the jew truly while it would be impossible to exclude that you refers to a self-righteous gentile it seems to me that the best interpretation is that paul is speaking directly to jews beginning in romans chapter 2 verse 1 be mindful that if you do your research what you will discover is that many commentators and bible scholars disagree on who the you of romans 2:1-5 is whether he is a moral person in general or a Jew in particular. In the end, based on the principles we're about to unpack, I don't think this distinction matters tremendously, but allow me to show you how many conclude that you refers to the Jew. What we have to do is look at Romans 2 overall and allow the whole to interpret the part. What the apostle does here is make an indictment against a morally superior attitude in verses 1 to 12. He then qualifies that indictment based on having the law in verses 13 to 16, based on doing the law in verses 17 to 24, and based on the covenant of circumcision in verses 25 to 29. And who is the person who has the law, was covenantally bound by it, and whom participated in the rite of circumcision? It was not a Gentile, but the Jew. And because Paul lays the basis for his accusation in the law and circumcision, it makes the most sense that the second person singular you is the Jew. Even more, since Paul addresses the Gentile previously as plural, they, and now switches to the singular, you, he alerts us to a change of audience. When chapter 2 is interpreted this way, a very interesting contrast develops with the prior chapter. In the former, the text says the Gentiles turned away from God's general revelation in nature, while in the latter, the Jews turned away from God's special revelation through the law. The grand irony here is the Gentile and Jew are not that different at all in that they are united in their guilt before a holy, impartial God. This helps to explain why, as Paul will go on to say in chapter 4, that it is by faith that enables anyone to escape the wrath of God and be a member of God's family. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. If we limit the spiritual application of this text to first century Jews, then we are again missing the point. Every one of you applies to every one of us, meaning professing Christians. It is undeniable that no regenerated believer will be condemned and go to hell. See John 3.16, 6.37, and Romans 8.1. It is also undeniable that God is a God of truth and He will not be mocked. Galatians 6.7 This means it is perfectly just for the Lord to chastise and correct one of His own right here and right now. A Christian therefore invites chastisement on himself when he judges and looks down on others for the same things that he is doing. Yes, the professing Christian may not have sunk down into extreme moral vices, but they may have fallen into religious elitism and spiritual self-righteousness. Because Jews, and therefore nominal and professing Christians, have a greater knowledge of God's truth, they are now more accountable to it and more inexcusable when they judge others. See James chapter 3 verse 1. In what we've discussed so far, we have seen that those who self-righteously judge others condemn themselves. The question now is why? The answer can be found in the second half of Romans 2.1. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. So the reasons why the person is condemned is twofold. Number one, by condemning, they admit that some things are wrong, and because they do the same things, the accuser is guilty. And number two, the accuser has inaccurately assessed their own moral standing and gauged themselves to be in good standing when, in fact, they are in bad standing. They think they are better off than others when, in actuality, they are in the same predicament. They are therefore not only wrong in judging the moral standing of others, they are also wrong in assessing their own. The depraved Gentile of Romans 1, who lives in open sin, hardly approves of the evil in others. The depraved Jew of Romans 2 hides under the veil of religion and disapproves of the very sins that they are in fact committing. In fact, if we look back to the Old Testament, what's recorded in God's book is overwhelming evidence of immoral behavior, not against Gentiles, but primarily against the Jews. The catalog of indictments runs from Genesis through Malachi. The point is that all have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The final clause of Romans 2.1 talks about what a person does. It talks about how a person lives. It says, For you who judge, practice the same things. The only point I would like to make here is that, contrary to the pervasive Jewish worldview in antiquity, the Bible says the Gentile was never condemned because he was a Gentile. He was condemned because of what he practiced. In the same way, the Jew was never safe as a function of who he is. He too was condemned because of what he practiced. This in no way champions a religion of works, but it does point to the simple reality that for anyone who is a true child of God, their lives can prove it. How can they prove it? By their fruits, Galatians 5:22-24, and by what they do," James 1:22-27. James chapter 1 verses 22 to 25 says, "But prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves." We spent a significant amount of time today talking about judging and the one impression I do not want to leave anyone with is that judging is inherently bad. After all, what does the holy God of the universe do? He judges. See Deuteronomy 32:4, Ecclesiastes 12:14, and Hebrews 10:30. What did Jesus do in John chapter 8 verses 44 to 45? He judged the Pharisees and called them of their father, the devil. What is the Apostle Paul doing in Romans chapter 2? He's judging religious hypocrites. He's passing judgment based on God's standard to convict everyone, including himself. The point is that divine judgment based on divine truth is always perfect, but human judgment is never perfect. The point is that judging in and of itself is not sinful, and what the Bible commands us not to do is to judge hypocritically or have a spirit of judgmentalism. It is never our standards, but God's standards, which are ultimately true. This is the thrust of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses one to five. That text says, "'Do not judge so that you will not be judged, For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. As Jesus says in John 7.24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So, for example, take the case of the prophet Nathan, where he confronted King David with his sin of adultery in 2 Samuel chapter 12. There, the prophet made an implicit judgment that adultery is wrong, and it is. But Nathan did not use his own scales to make that call. He relied on the word of God. And the prophet did not rebuke his king and then say, I'm better than you. God used his prophet to rebuke his king so that the sinner could come to repentance. Biblically speaking, judging never has a human focus. It is always God-focused. What this all means, practically speaking, is that whatever truth we know, we must live it. There cannot be a separation of doctrine and life. Knowing much but doing little means absolutely nothing. It means absolutely nothing because the devil has perfect doctrine and knows more Bible than you and me combined. He just never lives it. True judgment is always impartial and based on divine truth. And what is true forever is the Word of God. Now that we are at the end of our verse, let us stop here and reflect. What is the big thrust of the Apostle's words in Romans chapter 2, verse 1? What he is saying is that self-justification is no justification at all. What he is saying is that religiosity or morality is no excuse. He is saying that being publicly good will not spare you from the wrath of God. Indeed, a presumably moral man cannot declare himself innocent by condemning others. The fact of the matter is, people do not like looking at themselves because they do not like what they see. It's much easier to look down on someone else. The real-life issue, then, is that people have an innate tendency to pass judgment on one another. It's almost a reflexive part of our humanity. Whether we're people watching on the sidewalk, meeting someone new at work, or approaching a stranger on an evangelism crusade, people cannot help judging other people. But what possible gain is there if imperfect people imperfectly judge one another? We will only reveal just how imperfect we all are. And, by arguing from the lesser to the greater, if a moral man is condemned by human standards, then how much more is he condemned by divine standards? The message is therefore clear. I am not okay. You are not okay. No one is okay, which is why we must turn to the Savior who knows we are not okay and who offered us a way of salvation anyway. Taking a big step back, I think if anyone walks away from Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through chapter 2 verse 1 and passes judgment on either Gentiles or pagans, I think if they do that, they're missing the big picture. Yes, the Apostle Paul is addressing the Jew in chapter 2, but there is absolutely no point perseverating about what was wrong with the Jews if we fail to see the same shortcomings and crookedness in ourselves. Sin is the most pervasive disease of all of humanity and what sin does is warp how we see ourselves and how we see others. Sin elevates our own status and makes others seem far worse than they are. Sin makes us spiritual bigots and eludes us into thinking that God's truth applies to them but not to me. In fact, sin is actually so dangerous that if people sit under gospel preaching for too long and respond sinfully, the gospel can actually harden their heart and not soften it. They can hear so much truth, they may reach a point where they think the gospel no longer applies to them. The person who is religion-hardened no longer allows God's word to transform them. They merely search the scriptures to confirm their own carnal ideas. This is a person who is the prime example of a Pharisee. They are so self-satisfied that they are beyond correction and legitimize their hypocrisy in the name of the Lord. The subtlety of sin persuades us to think that we can always point a finger at others and never examine ourselves. But the reality is no one is in a special category. We are all fallen. This is why the gospel is of first importance. All of this goes back to a core idea of the Christian faith and of Romans in general. Justification by faith alone. There is always something in sinful man that wants to contribute something to his salvation. His bloodline, his works, his prayers, his circumcision, his denominational affiliation, his moral living, his theology, or his condemnation of those who are unworthy. But the righteousness of God is neither revealed based upon who you are or what you have done. It is revealed based upon who Christ is and what Christ has done. Is this not what Romans chapter 1 verses 16 to 17 says? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. A man will run away from the doctrine of justification by faith alone whenever he wants to run away from the perfect work of Christ. He does that because he wants to play a role in salvation. He wants to add his peace to the whole, then it will all be finished. Man will clutch at any straw to justify himself and delight in his own works. So I will end by going back to the you of Romans 2.1. Who is Paul really talking to? You. That includes me. We are all included, to the Jew first and to the Greek. That includes everyone without exception. There is none righteous, no, not one. So who will save you regardless of who you are? There is only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in Him, and you will be saved. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.